Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Our scripture today comes from John 9, verses 1 through 11. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, No, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, Yes, I am the same one. They asked, Who healed you? What happened? He told them, The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Skepticism is the norm these days. When institution after institution fails to live into expectations, whether realistic or fairy tale, we find ourselves questioning a lot of things. Enlightenment opened up new potentials for us to reach the heights of human ability, but those same advances also made possible new ways to explore human depravity. Technology promised us lives of greater ease and convenience, and instead, We work longer with machines, forgetting that we are not part of the machinery. Greater transparency promised systems of greater trust, and yet what often accompanied was a better glimpse at the corruptions that were ingrained into the system. Religion promises peace, hope, and love, and yet all too often we see religion producing division, fear, and animosity. Any observant person can see reasons why folks would become skeptical. Now, we can misuse the word pretty frequently these days. We use the term skeptic as a synonym for doubter, but it isn't just doubt that makes a skeptic. There's something to skepticism. The traditional definition of skepticism usually means that it's approaching something unknown with a desire to study it for better understanding. Honest skeptics aren't passive doubters, they're active scholars. And when there are questions, True skeptics seek answers. There are a lot of folks who won't approach faith because it has too many question marks. Those aren't skeptics. Skeptics will engage the questions and seek after answers. This series is designed for skeptics. The people, for people who are seeking understanding. You don't have to be a believer in God, in Jesus, or the church to engage with this series, but it's very appropriate for church folks to have some lingering curiosity sparked as well. And this is one of the reasons that I've come to appreciate a couple of things about the questions of the Christian faith. The first is, 
Trusting Jesus doesn't mean you've run out of questions. Our faith is constantly seeking understanding. And the second is, when we honestly seek answers, we get more than answers. We get a relationship with the ultimate answerer. And there are a few questions that confront faith quite as often or as head-on as today's truly understandable concern. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? I'm going to approach that in a couple of different ways. We're going to look at this partly through the lens of academia. There's a bit of a dispassionate removal that allows us to talk in terms of hypotheticals. That can give us a broad understanding of the ethical and theological implications of this question. But I also recognize that most people don't ask this question as a purely hypothetical exercise. Many people have become skeptical about God's role in a world where cancer or car accidents can claim the lives of loved ones. That's where the response can't be academic. So that will be a very important part of our conversation today, too. So to get started with the more hypothetical and dispassionate aspect of the question, let's start by defining bad things. What is a bad thing? Does that just mean things that we don't like? Does it mean simply that we disagree with things? Or maybe it's a situation that we don't fully understand? Maybe it has to do with things that would hinder or halt life, well-being, and justice. That's really what we're going to stick with this morning as a definition of bad, things that would hinder or halt life, well-being, and justice. That question often does have to do with things like disease, tragic accidents, war, abuse, and poverty. Those concerns almost always come up when this big question happens of why do bad things happen. The concept can scale down to our day-to-day frustrations as well. And for a couple of thousand of years, people dealing with the concept of bad, wrong, or suffering have tried to make sense of how there can be, at the same time, a just and loving higher power, while there is also hurt and evil at work in the world. Theologians refer to this paradox as theodicy. Theodicy. The problem of evil alongside the reality of God. One understanding looks at reality of evil with basically three sliders that we can use to figure out what gives in the equation. Basically, it means that evil exists because maybe one, God is not loving, or two, that God is not all-powerful, or three, that pain is an illusion. Something's got to give, and traditionally, according to this concept of theodicy, you have to pick one. Now, I'm going to flip things up just a little bit. If we define bad, we should probably also define good, since conceptually we kind of understand them both by how they contrast against each other. And from an ethical standpoint, some say good is what's best for the livelihood of all. Some say good is what makes people happy. Some say something is good for me, only if it's good for everyone else. And from a uniquely Christian perspective, here are a couple of important, although not the only questions, that Christians can always ask to help us better understand and define what is good. The questions are, how can this make me more into the likeness of Christ? How can this perfect me in God's love? How can it make me more gracious, merciful, and loving? Another question is, how can this help advance the reign of God where love and grace reign. I'm going to revisit this, but I wanted to offer these thoughts as we move ahead. So why does evil exist? Why do bad things happen? And that leads to our first lesson. Evil is a risk 
built into a creation with the freedom to make choices. Evil is a risk built into a creation with the freedom to make choices. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Why? Was it because of his own sins, because of his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. The story of creation paints a picture of humanity having choices. The Hebrew scriptures interpreted through the lens of Christian tradition points to humanity's disobedience against God as the introduction of evil into the world. There was one prohibition given to Adam. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there were lots of other trees and food sources. Everything else was available. Could humanity live humbly, relying upon the provision of their God and taking God at his word, that this relationship he shared with them and the way that he provided for them would be sufficient for their needs? And we see very quickly that the answer to that question is no. If God has this foreknowledge of everything, like scripture and tradition describes God to have, that fall, that disobedience and mistrust had to be a known probability by God. That breach of trust wasn't just an if, but a win. Why risk it then? Why build a potential for catastrophe into the system? It's because love, like apathy and hate, are acts of will and not just a thoughtless emotional response. God could have made us robots with no self-will, designed to only obey and worship. But if we love without choosing, is that truly love? The only way to love God and to love others is to have the freedom to choose love. Meaning, we also have the freedom to choose hate, violence, drinking and driving, assault. This isn't to say that all bad things are a direct result of somebody's poor or sinful choice. Sometimes there is a ripple effect outward where our choices will trigger some sort of harm that may be a few layers removed from us or whoever the instigator may be, but even that doesn't explain all the wrong in the world. It's only fair to say that the church throughout history has not always been on the right side of this freedom to choose either. In our lifetimes, and even just recently, we see plenty of unjustifiable violence, abuse, and corruption that tarnishes the name of Jesus. From the start, the church has always been a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. It's just that sometimes the most wounded in a religious community will lead others to do some incredible wounding themselves in the name of Jesus. It's bloody. It's regrettable. We can often see that it's wrong with a moment of reflection, and sadly, it's almost guaranteed on this side of eternity. I believe God does interfere with and prevent some evil and destructive acts. I believe there is a grace that offers us a great deal of protection against so many of the natural consequences that we would face in a fallen world, but that grace obviously does not stop all of the evil and the destruction that takes place. I honestly believe that God is able to make a world where we all live through no choice of our own into the peace of his kingdom's kindness, but God doesn't force that upon us. Humans are still given the freedom to choose, to choose wisely or to choose poorly, and I really do believe God has the power, and for reasons I might never understand, God chooses to refrain from dictating all the actions and outcomes, and that means that we will suffer in this life. 
Now that understanding doesn't explain why an unnamed man in today's scripture was born blind. We have no idea the cause, absolutely zero. The scripture goes out of the way to make that not the point. Do you notice that? Jesus' followers really wanted to know whose sin, whose fault was to blame for this man's blindness. And finding who's to blame doesn't necessarily give this man back his sight. But it's a preoccupation of the church since the beginning, and it still is today. Notice Jesus bypassed assigning blame altogether. Jesus instead focused on the face of this man's need. That leads to our second lesson. Pain is real. Love is still more powerful. Pain is real. Love is still more powerful. I remember when our kids were still in the uh, everything needs a band-aid stage of owies and boo-boos. Even those injuries that may have been days old and dried over, if it came to mind, it needed a band-aid. When our children would bring those hurts to us, they weren't hoping we'd minimize their pain or tell them it's nothing, dismiss it by saying it's going to be all right, and then tell them that their hurt doesn't require a bandage. They were hoping that someone would acknowledge that they were injured, that their pain was real, and it's worthy of attention and care. Sometimes I'm not really good at giving the attention and care that those things need. Sometimes I just wanted them to rub some dirt on it and walk it off. Sometimes I gave them straws instead of band-aids and instructions to suck it up. But there are times when I see how important it is to this child of mine that they experience pain and that they need some comfort. That's the thing that we find in Jesus. To those who are truly hurting, his response was love. The only time he said to rub dirt on it was in this instance when holy dirt helped the person to experience actual healing. He didn't tell people their pain was an illusion or something to be avoided at all costs. He met them at the point of their hurt and brought the power of love with him. Some see God as aloof, like a watchwinder who put the system into motion and stepped away to tend to some other things. But Jesus is God stepping personally and intimately down into the beloved creation. Jesus is the love of God lived out in its fullness before our eyes and among us. Jesus didn't try to avoid suffering, but walked right into suffering with humanity. Real suffering through poverty, homelessness, abuse, mockery, and execution. Through Jesus, we can see that God knows our pain. And the divine response to suffering is being present in love to help us carry our burdens. Our third lesson this morning is this. God's answer to pain and wrong is compassion. God's answer to pain and wrong is compassion. Jesus says it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happens so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. As someone who was raised in a household where academics were held in high regard, I loved having right answers. And I'll correct that. I love having the right answers. But a lot of times when people hurt, they may want reasons, they may want to cast blame or try to make sense of their pain, but that can be such an empty 
pursuit. The answers don't always answer for much. Answers don't always make the pain and sorrow of a fallen world go away. The definition of theodicy doesn't fill the place in anyone's heart where a loved one once lived. That's partly why Jesus didn't spend a lot of time giving answers in response to someone's pain. He had compassion for them. The very literal definition of compassion is to suffer with. Calm is with. Passion is suffering. Compassion is to suffer with, alongside. Through Jesus Christ, God showed incredible solidarity alongside of us, with us, in our suffering. And in several situations through Scripture, we see Jesus relieving suffering, illness, torment, isolation, and shame. The presence of Jesus always brought with it comfort and healing in some way. His presence always brought dignity and hope. And yet we see evidence of a world with evil, hurt, and wrong. What sense can be made of that? I read a quote several years ago that didn't have a clear origin, but it sticks with me. The quote reads, Sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty, suffering, and injustice when he could do something about it. But I'm afraid he would ask me the same question. So often our questions about evil in the world aren't so simply directed at God, but at ourselves. If we know what causes hurt, if we know how to heal the sick, if we know how to feed the hungry, if we know what brings greater grace and love, then it's not always a matter of waiting on God to do something about it. Maybe the something that God has done about suffering and wrong is to send us. Wounded healers that we are, maybe part of God's solution to what's wrong in this world is to respond by touching our lives with such grace and compassion that our minds and spirits are transformed so that we might make a difference in the lives of others. Maybe we're the ones we've been waiting for, a body of people who experience the compassion of Jesus and come together with gifts and powers that God has given to us to make the world look more and more like the kingdom. God. The pain people suffer is real. Maybe you've come here with some pain that weighs heavily upon your heart. Someone else may not know exactly what you're going through, but someone can sit with your pain and lovingly, graciously help you carry it for just a little while. Maybe we do have the power to change the circumstances, and if so, we get to do our part. In the end, though, we may not make the hurt the grief or the problem disappear, but someone might bring the love and hope of a caring God into our lives. And with that, there might be healing, gradual and lasting healing. Bearing one another's burdens with compassion may not feel good to us, and it can be spiritually and emotionally exhausting, but it sure helps us to grow to be more like Jesus. And that pouring out drives us back again to Jesus so we can be filled once again with life, with hope, with compassion and endurance to love as we're called to love. That compassion sure helps bring the promise of a grace-ruled kingdom a little closer. And the promise of Scripture is that Jesus joins us even today in that work. This pandemic has been a nightmare for many. It's brought about grief for many. It's exacerbated divides, it's increased anxieties and tensions around things like ethnic and racial inequalities. Those are bad things. 
And in the midst of this, I've also seen people find their gifts for serving their neighbors in need. I've seen people find their voices to protect the vulnerable and marginalized. I've witnessed people learning how to exercise self-control and become peacemakers for the sake of nurturing relationships when they used to lash out in pure frustration and anger. These good outcomes aren't the reasons for the hardship we face, but good and godly outcomes can certainly be born from hardship. When we let Jesus be our strength in that work of compassion, we may not get all the answers to why something bad has happened. But I believe our loving God is already present in every situation, maybe in ways that we can't yet perceive. And I trust that God can bring about good in every situation. And we've been called through compassion to be a part of that good. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we may come to you with many questions in our heart. There are hurts and wounds that we've experienced in this world and maybe even within the church. And God, we know that if you are a God of compassion, that healing is possible. And so, Lord, as we seek answers, as we seek to understand why, God, we pray that even more than the answers, you would bring healing. You would bring a grace that forgives and extends forgiveness. You would offer hope and dignity that your compassion would reach us. We pray it would reach us not only in your presence with us, but as you offer us people in our lives who can reflect your kindness and your love. We thank you for that gift that's been shared with us. And if we have experienced that compassion, I pray that you would use us to extend it to others. That as we have been shown your love, we would extend that so freely and generously to those who you love. Those who are hurting. And those who need to know there is a God who cares. We lift all of this to you with hope, with anticipation. And even if it's just with the tiniest seed of faith, that is the kind of faith that can move mountains. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. All in the powerful name of Christ our Lord. Amen.